Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today my message is entitled Walking in Sunship. And of course, I think most of us by now have heard that song by Katrina and the Waves, Walking on Sunshine. And of course, came out in 1985. They were a pop group in a UK pop group. It was, they were one hit wonder. That was it. That was their one song. That's why you don't know any of their other songs. And uh, it was a pretty deep song. Let me tell you, so you can catch the hidden meaning. It's a, it's a story of a, of a girl who's going to the mailbox every day to see if her boyfriend has written her. And if he wrote a letter, then she would be walking on sunshine. Whoa, don't it feel good. That's the whole song. No hidden meaning. It's like really the most useless song ever written. But it sounds like a lot of fun and it's like good pop bubblegum type music. And no self-respecting church should ever do that song in church. But we did it anyway. <laughs> and I'll tell you, maybe we shouldn't be singing about walking on sunshine, but we should be singing about walking in sunship. And so today it's all about sonship. It's about finding our identity in Christ. And so let me begin by this, because I think discovering our identity is one of our most important human pursuits. I think that there is an innate, inescapable desire that every one of us have to find out who are we? Why are we here? What am, what am I doing in this world? And what value am I? So I want to tell you a little story about that. After the First World War, which they called the war to end all wars because it was so violent and it was so aggressive and it was so in your face, and these poor men were in the trenches fighting just literally feet from the enemy, and sometimes in close combat where they were spearing one another with bayonets, and it, it tragically affected them. And today we would call it PS, uh, PTSD, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But in those days they called it shell shock. And uh, sometimes it affected them so psychologically that they got retrograde amnesia and didn't even know who they were. And so there's a story after the First World War in France where they had at least 100 soldiers who didn't know who they were. They had forgotten who they were. They didn't know, therefore, where they lived or where their family was or what they had done before. And they didn't know their way back home. And so they had this important identification rally in Paris, and they set up a stage and thousands of people showed up because they were all missing sons and husbands in war that didn't come back, missing in action or dead, uh, that they never recovered. And so they came in, in hope against hope that maybe one of these young men was their young man. And one by one, these men mounted the stage, turned to the crowd and said this, does anybody know who I am? And the war correspondent who had covered the whole war and seen the horrific things that had happened in the trenches said that that identification rally was probably the most emotional thing that he saw during the whole war. Because when people don't know who they are, when people are lost, that's a tragic thing. And on some level, I think every one of us is trying to discover who we are in life. We're all on this journey, right? Where do we fit in? Who, who's my, who are my people? What do, what do I mean to others? And, and if any of you don't believe me, just remember high school for a moment. <laughs> Do you remember how painful high school was? Trying to fit in and discover where, where you were and where, where you fit into this group, right? Am, am I a, a nerd or am I a jock? Am I a, a geek or am I a goth? And you're always sort of struggling. I mean, you look, you look at young people, I feel so bad for them. They're always struggling to, to, to fit in. 
So on that theme, last weekend was my high school reunion. I went to Vincent Massey right over here. It was our high school reunion. It was the 60th year anniversary of the school. Now for me, it was 48 years since I had graduated. And so it was kind of cool to be back. But to my surprise, uh, after all those years, I graduated in a class of about 300 and something students out of grade 12 in 1975. And uh, only four other guys showed up other than me. There were some, some gals that showed up and they were at this one table and then there was these four guys whom I knew, all four of them. And, but I didn't sit with them because my wife Kathy went to the same school so I sat with her and her friends because they were younger, better looking, and a lot more fun. And so, so, I, so I just blew off my gang and I sat with her. So after dinner was done and the dance had started and the band was playing and I went to look for my guys. I went to look for my posse. <laughs> this is so funny. And I found them and they were at the very we were at the convention center and they're at the very 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 back of the room standing against the wall like this one two three four and I walked up to them and I said hey guys so I guess some things never change right <laughs> to which they said what do you mean I said what are you talking about we're out of school dance and the four of you are standing at the back wall not a girl in sight <laughs> nothing changed and then they looked at me and they said, well, nothing's changed with you either. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you were a jerk in high school and you're still a jerk today. <laughs> I said, that's sort of true, but there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> so we all know what this journey is, this journey of self-discovery. Who are we? Where do we fit in? What are we all about? And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about our journey in Christ because I think what we have to discover is who we are in him because it doesn't really matter who we are in us, right? So here, here's where I'm, where I'm going with this. Galatians chapter 4 verse 3 says this, even so when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then heir to God or heir of God through Christ. And so there's a lot of stuff going on here, but what, what he does is he compares our journey into Christendom as someone who went from slavery into sonship. And what he says is that we were slaves to the elements of this world. We were under the bondage to things like sin and sickness and social anxiety and addictions and all the other stuff that the world entraps and ensnares us in. And he says we went from slavery into sonship. And he's actually employing a metaphor that every single person, he's writing to the Galatians here, they were a Gentile community, they would have known what he's talking about. And this metaphor that he's using actually was not a Jewish one, it was a Roman one. And there was a Roman custom in their day that if there was a Roman man who had no heir, had no son, and he had no heir, he could take one of his slaves in his household, he could adopt him as his son, that man would take his name, and he would actually become the heir to his estate. And I don't want you to miss how important this, this, this picture was that Paul was painting. Because a slave had nothing. He had no freedom and no property and no future and no prospects. And he goes from being a slave into being a son. 
And he says, this is what your journey is like. And everybody, he only used this metaphor twice. And he used it once in Galatians and once in Romans because it wasn't something the, the Jews would understand or would know, but this group of people would know exactly what he was talking about. Not only that, there's a historical example. It's maybe not exactly this, but it's a famous example that's similar. And it had to do with Julius Caesar. So we all know the Emperor Julius Caesar, but you might not remember that he did not have a son. Therefore, he did not have an heir. So he adopted a distant nephew to be his son who took on his name and carried it on and became the emperor of Rome. And of course, I'm talking about Caesar Augustus. That was not his son, but he became the next emperor. And so this, this is this immense picture that, that Paul is giving us that that's the same as our journey. We were slaves in this world. But by the work of the cross, Christ adopted us into the family of God, and we go from slaves into sonship. So I want to talk about two things today, actually, and I'm going to throw them up on the screen. If we're going to walk in sonship, here's what we need to think about. The fatherhood of God and the sonship of mankind. So the first thing is we have to recognize who God is. God defines himself as the father. I think we all know that, we all understand that, we see it all the way through scripture. But I'll tell you what's unique about this. No other religion has God as the father. Even Islam, which is sort of patterned after Judaism, even Islam has 99 names for God, none of them are father. We are the only religion that has a God who is a father. And there's a reason for that, and we're gonna talk about that, and it's the personal aspect of this. And he goes as far as to say that he has given us this spirit of adoption, that we become sons, that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's what we can call him, Abba, Father. Now, when you cry out, Abba, you are not requesting a Swedish pop band to do the song, Mamma Mia. That is not, that is not what that means. He is talking about the intimate nature of this fatherhood. That's why he uses the word Abba. Abba was an Aramaic word, and it means it's the informal of father, and it's the personal of father, and it's probably the most intimate word they would have had in their language. And what it means is daddy or papa. And that is what he says we can call him. We can call God in heaven. We can call him daddy. We can call him papa. Now, I don't know what it was like in your family. Uh, in the generations of my family, it, it kind of changed what we call our fathers. My father called my grandfather father in a very formal way. This was a stern and austere man. And my father say, father, father, that sounds very intimate to me, doesn't it to you? No, it was very, very formal. They called him father. Even my grandmother called him father. And then when my dad, you know, had kids, we all called him dad. In fact, in my culture, every single kid I knew, every last one of them called their dad, dad. We all called him dad. Nothing wrong with the word dad. Most people use it today. Nothing wrong with that word. But it has a connotation to me because our fathers, my generation's fathers, these were post-war people. And they were, as men, they were a bit emotionally detached. And most men that I, or kids that I knew my age, they did not have a close relationship with their father, and their fathers weren't actually capable of, of doing that. So when I had kids, I had thought about this passage because I was a pastor before I had kids, and I'd read this passage many times. And I thought that was interesting that Paul says that we can call God the Father Abba, which is Daddy or, or Papa. And I decided I was going to have my kids call me Papa as opposed to Dad. 
Only because to me, maybe I'm wrong, but to me it sounded more informal and it sounded more intimate and it sounded more loving. So my kids were, grew up calling me Papa until they were teenagers and said, you know, this is really dorky that we call you this. And then they changed it and they started calling, they changed it, I didn't. They started calling me Pop, which was, was fine. But what happens is my grandkids call me Papa. And I wanna tell you something, there is nothing that thrills my heart more than when my little grandkids come running towards me crying, Papa, Papa. I'm just telling you, maybe I'm a big suck, but that just, that just touches my heart so much. And I love the intimacy of it. And I tell you that story because that's what this picture is telling us about. It's saying that, that God is not just a father, he is our Abba Father with this intense personal relationship. You even see it with Jesus and the Heavenly Father. I want you to think about this for a minute. So Jesus is 30 years old. He's gone to the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John. He comes up out of the water and it says the Holy Spirit descends upon him and then the voice comes from heaven, do you remember? And the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, doesn't that sound personal and intimate to you? See, the problem with most religions in the world is God is a transcendent deist God who is impersonal and disconnected from humanity. Not the God in heaven, because the God of heaven is a father. And he says, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Not only did he love him and express it in front of all those people, he affirmed him in front of all those people. He hadn't even done anything yet. He says, I'm well pleased. I'm thinking, about what? Hasn't done anything yet. Hasn't preached the sermon, hasn't raised the dead, hasn't healed the sick. He was affirming him for who he was, not what he had done. And fathers, I want to talk to you about that because that's incredibly important. That we can't have this performance orientation that we approve our kids based on what they do, have done but, but because of what they do. And there is this thing within humanity, men and women, that longs, and I, I, don't, I can't explain it, but we long for the affirmation and the, and the approval of our fathers. And people, I know people my age who are still seeking after that. And you know what, they may, they may never get it, but it's this crucial thing that somehow we have this innate and, and, and you know, need that we can't seem to shake. You see it all the way through scripture. I'm gonna tell you the story of Isaac and his two sons. You all remember Isaac had twin sons. They were, they were Esau and Jacob. They were twins, but I, Esau came out just moments before Jacob, so that makes him the older son. So that meant he got the primary, he was the primary heir, and he got the primary blessing uh, as the firstborn. And so you have these two boys, even though they're twins, they grow up completely different. You'll remember Esau was a real manly guy. I mean, he was big and he was strong and he was tough. He was hairy, he was smelly. He hunted, killed stuff. And his dad loved him. I mean, yeah, that's my boy, right? And then you have Jacob. I don't know if you remember the story of Jacob. I mean, Jacob was kind of, I'm just going to say, he was a bit of a mama's boy. I mean, he was a little bit of a soft male. He didn't even have any hair on him. He was a hairless Gonzales, just like me. You know, I have no hair on my arms, none. I'm supposed to be Italian. What's that all about? Where's the hair? Right? And so me and, me and Jacob, I'm cracking with this guy. And so he's always hanging out in the kitchen with his mom, baking pies and stuff. And so, so then mom says, you know, we got to get that blessing from your dad. Now, now, Isaac had gone dim of sight, so he didn't, you know, couldn't tell who was who at this point. So mom comes up with this plan and says, we're going to get this blessing. So this is what we're going to do. You go put on your smelly brother's clothes so they stink just like him. And then, she, <laughs> this is the favorite part of the story to me, she gets some animal fur and puts them on his arms. 
how hairy are you that, that, that it has to be animal fur? So, so he's got animal furs, and he says, now you go over there, and you talk to your dad, and you ask him for the blessing. So he goes over there. I assume he put on a different voice. Hey, Dad, it's me, Esau. Are you sure that's you, Esau? Feels his arm, fur. Yeah, that's my boy. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I mean, again, how hairy are you that your dad can't tell the difference between the dog and you, you know? I mean, how, how bad are you? You're petting your dog. Hey, son, how are you doing? Let's go out and play catch. You know, the dog will go and play catch with you, but that's not your son. It's a dog. But anyway, so he, he fakes him out. And, uh, and, and Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And Esau comes back, and he's absolutely heartbroken because his brother stole his blessing. You see how important that blessing is? Is that, you know, we obviously don't want to steal it, but that's, that's how vital people are and desire it so much. So I want to tell you a true story about some family friends. They lived just down the road from us, and uh, they were good friends as well as neighbors. And uh, he, the father had two sons, and uh, he, he, he treated them totally different. And he favored the young one over the older one. The older one was three years older. And he called the young one the golden boy. How do you think life's going to go for you if your father calls you the golden boy? Probably going to go pretty good. And so everything the golden boy did worked out golden. I mean, it just went fine. He ended up being, you know, in all the sports teams. And he was smart in school. In fact, he won the governor general's medal in his high school. And then he went all the way to Oxford. And he got a, a PhD from Oxford. And he ended up being a multimillionaire. And his life was this raving, mad, wild success. Meanwhile, the older son, it didn't matter what the older son did, it was never good enough for the father. And he referred to him, you're going to hate this, he referred to him as old stupid. I'm not joking. He'd say, well, you know, old stupid, he'd be telling this story. Well, you know, old stupid backed into a tree with his car, so now we got to get it fixed. And this is how he talked to his son. So if you have two sons, the golden boy and old stupid, how do you think old stupid's going to turn out? Old stupid had a really tough time in life. He had a tough time in school, tough time in sports, tough time in relationships. He got married, but he ended up getting divorced. He's a, you know, as, as far as potential is going, this guy had lots of potential. He was full of potential, but he could not get his father's approval. And that's how powerful this force is. And I don't totally know how to explain it psychologically, but we tend to have this need to find our father's affirmation and approval. So I remember when my, my daughter was in high school, she was on the basketball team, and they were in the finals. And uh, I was trying to get to the finals, but I was in a meeting or something, I don't remember. Might have worked for a living, who knows. And, uh, and so I couldn't get there in time, and I got there at halftime. And when I got there at halftime, they were behind 20, 21 to 28. The other team was leading. And so I sat down in the stands. They came out for the second half, and uh, they just ripped it up. My daughter ripped it up. And they ended up winning the game, 54 to 53. And so anyway, everybody was excited. My daughter ends up winning player of the game, which was also really cool. So then at the end of the match, the, the coach's wife comes running up to me and she says, oh, Mark, it's a good thing you got here just in time so we could win. I said, what are you talking about? The coach didn't even put me in. She says, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the fact that your daughter always plays better when she knows you're in the stands. Isn't that fascinating? I did not know that. But there's something within us, deep within us, that desires that. And you know, I'm going to say it again. You know, we may not get our approval from our, our earthly father. We may not. 
That's just the way it is. And sometimes I think people are a little bit too obsessed with trying to find that. And sometimes they need to let it go. Because I'll tell you what, you can always get that from your Heavenly Father. At the end of the day, that's what you, where you need to get it. And our identity comes from who we are in Christ, not necessarily who we are in this world. So I want to tell you a story. I find it hilarious. We'll see what you think about it. And it comes from our former premier, Brian Palliser. You, you all remember him. And uh, so Brian had some daughters, and, and, and one of her daughters, see, Brian had quite a political career. Uh, he was an MLA and an MP, and then he came back and he became the uh, premier of the province. And uh, so he was very well known in his community and very successful. And his little daughter, about seven years old, was so proud of him. And whenever she'd meet someone, she'd say, hi, I'm Brian Palliser's daughter. And she would always introduce herself that way. And one day, her mother sat her down and says, listen, honey, you got to quit introducing yourself as Brian Palliser's daughter. You are not Brian Palliser's daughter. You are your own person. You, this is your name. You tell people your name. You need to be yourself and quit using that expression. So she said, yes, mammy, I could do that. The next week, they're at church, and a woman comes up to her and says, oh, look at you, sweetie. You're Brian Palliser's daughter, aren't you? She says, nope. I used to think I was, but my mother says I'm not. <laughs> and I remember when I heard that story, it reminded me when my daughter was seven, she came up to me and she said, Papa, she called me Papa. She said, Papa, I have a question. If mommy had married someone else, would I be someone different? <laughs> I thought about it for a moment and I said, no, but I would be. <laughs> you all get that, don't you? It's like the story of the CEO and his wife, and they were driving along, and they're at the gas station, and there's a gas jockey putting gas in the tank, and the wife is leaning out the window, making friendly with the gas jockey. So when they drive away, he said, uh, the husband says, the CEO says to his wife, what was that all about? You're pretty friendly with the gas jockey. She says, well, I've known him my whole life. I used to date him in high school. And the CEO starts to laugh and says, <laughs> imagine that. If you'd married him, you'd be married to a gas jockey. To which she said, no, if I'd married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas jockey. <laughs> uh, that's autobiographical. That's the story of me and Kathy. So there you go. So the first thing here is our, our fatherhood and discovering who the Father God is. And that's where we begin. But the second part of this is discovering our sonship and having a real understanding of what it means to be in this sonship relationship. And the sonship is, uh, the, it's used as a metaphor, sonship, instead of, you know, uh, childhood or anything like that, simply because uh, he's using that metaphor of the slaves becoming slaves to a son. So that's why we use the term sonship, even though it relates both to men and, and to women. But I want to tell this story that is very important in scripture that you all know. It's a parable called the, the uh, prodigal son, parable of the prodigal son. And uh, many of the theologians call this the prince of parables because it's so important. And if you don't understand the prodigal son, you'll probably never really understand the gospel. So the, the story goes like this. It's once again a story of a father with two sons. Uh, and, and he has this large farm and he's very wealthy and things look like they're going fine in this life. And then one day the younger son comes to him and he asks for his inheritance early. 
And so the father, don't ask me why, but he agrees to give him his inheritance early. You know what this tells me about this son? This son understood the rights of being part of that family, but didn't understand responsibilities and relationships. I mean, how would you like to have a son who just lived upstairs in his room, never talked to you, never came down except for meals, played on his computer, and the only time he ever talked to you was when he was asking you for something? Oh, I struck a nerve there, didn't I? I just described your son, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, my apologies about that. But anyway, that's who this kid was. He was only inter interested in himself. So he wants to go off into the world and take his inheritance and make his own way. So he traveled off to a distant country, it said, and it says he spent all the money, every last denarius he spent on prodigal living, is the word that's used in the scripture. Now, prodigal is too gentle a word. The better word would be riotous or dissolute or wild living. And so what this kid would have done, you need to understand the essence of this story. Whatever the worst thing that a young person could have got into in that day was what this kid was into. He was into it all and he spent all his money on it and then he was absolutely busted broke, had nothing. And so it says he ended up attached to a pig farmer. And you know what that means? It means he became a slave. He became, he became a servant of this pig farmer. And there he was, he was feeding the pigs. He was up to his neck in pig slop and he's feeding the pods to the pigs. And he thinks to himself, I wish I had these pods to eat for myself. And then there's this crucial sentence, this crucial line in the story. And it says, and he came to his senses. And all of a sudden, he came to his senses. He had this moment. He had this epiphany. And he thought to himself, I will go back to my father because my father's servants are treated better than I am now. And I will beg him. He won't take me back as a son, but I'll beg him to take me back as a servant or a slave because I know I'll be treated by my father better. But the key moment in this story is that he came to his senses. I am praying for our world to come to their senses. I am praying for people to come to their senses. Do you know why? I think our world has gone stark, raving mad. I think our culture has completely lost it. I mean, I think if we look at the world and where it's going and the, thing, the direction it's going and you turn on the news and you, you, you just think, really, is this, is, is this where our world is going? Is this what we're into? And you know, 20 years ago, they used to call this big movement, this you know, social engineering, they used to call it uh, political correctness. But it's gone to seed and it's morphed into this thing. People use the word wokeness, whether that's the right word or not. You know what I'm talking about. And what, is it, what has it done? What has it created? It has created more division than we've ever seen in our culture ever. It, is, it has created massive reverse discrimination. It has created a toxic level of tribalism. It has created censorship and it has created more confusion than I think any of us could ever imagine. I think most of you know what I'm talking about. But, and there's a lot of different examples I could give you, but let me give you one. I thought I'd never live to see the day where so many young people were so confused about what gender they really are, even are. I mean, who, who would have thought we would ever come to this place? You know that never in human history, for thousands of years of human history, people, for the most part, never questioned what gender they were. They came into the world, you either got a boy or got a girl, and a, a boy grew up to be a man, a girl grew up to a woman, full stop, that was history. For thousands and thousands of years, till about 20 minutes ago, and all of a sudden, nobody knows what gender they are, and they're all confused. 
And we look at this, see, I think we have, I'm gonna go back to the beginning of the message. I think what we're experiencing is a crisis in identity. I think that's what it amounts to. I think we are really stuck and twisted around and we're so confused and we're busy bombarding kids as young as five years old and telling them this narrative that they may or may not be a boy or a girl and they can decide whatever gender they want to be. I'm thinking, where did, where did this come from? I don't know about you, I fear for my grandchildren. I fear for my grandchildren to be brought up in this world. Something has to change. So let me, let me get dangerous here for a moment. I wanna talk about gender pronouns. I suppose that's a safe subject, so let's, let's get into that. <laughs> but let's look, let's look at scripture and let's look at gender pro pronouns. So God is very clear about who he is. He refers to himself as him, as his, as he, and never anything else. Now, there's a big movement to change that. I don't know if you know that. It's called inclusive language in scripture. And this movement says, why does God have to be a man? Why can't God be a woman? Why can't God be non-binary? And you know, this is going on and on. You've heard those expressions many, many times. And so they would like to change it. They say, why does it have to be, you know, the heavenly father? Why can't it be the divine parent? Why can't it be it instead of him? Well, you know what? Many other world religions, it's exactly that. The, the ultimate power, the divine source, whatever that is, isn't it. And it's not a him. But there's one reason and one reason only why God identifies and communicates through humanity as a male. Only one reason, you wanna know what it is? He's a father, he's a father. And there's no other way to shake this, there's no other way to break this down, that is how he communicates. He is God the Father, Jesus is God the Son, and we are called the brothers and the sisters. There's, there's nothing vague about this, it's so, so clear in scripture. And so then you look at it and say, okay, what does he think about mankind, how, how does that all work? Well, he's pretty clear about that. Because you go back to the book of Genesis, it says, and God created mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. Yeah. Male, male and female. There's no variations, there's no combinations in that. There's no you know, multiple genders, there's two. There's male, there's female. I knew, remember when I grew up, we had this joke, it went like this. How do you tell a male chromosome from a female chromosome? You pull down its genes. That's, that's, how the, that's how the joke used to go. It's a good science joke. And, uh, and so, so we, we, we look at this, and you know, there's no equivocation in this. He's really clear, you're, you're either male or female, and he made you that way. And let me, let me, show, you, let me show you scripture on this. Uh, it's in uh, Psalm, Psalm 139. And I know, I know people have lots of different opinion on this, I get that. But let's look at what the scripture says about it. I think science has actually already had the final word on this. I mean, science actually agrees with the scripture. But let's go a little bit deeper in this and personalize this. I'm gonna to talk to you about what God says about you and about your children. This is what it is. Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows well, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. He describes us 
is fearfully and wonderfully made. He said he formed our inward parts and we were skillfully uh, wrought in the hidden chambers. Even before you were even born, even before you even had a day. See, whoever you are, whatever race, whatever, whatever gender, whatever height, whatever width, whoever you are, your bone structure, every single thing you are today, God made you that. It says he formed you. It says he formed your parts. We can't imagine for a minute that God would make a mistake on this. It's not possible. Scripture is abundantly clear that every single one of us, you can't ever say, I wished I was somebody else. You can't be. You are uniquely made, fearfully and wonderfully made. And we need to come and be at peace with that. So let's talk about this word, this word gender, dysphoria. Boy, do we hear a lot about that. Let me define the word for you. Dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria. Euphoria is, is to be happy with something. Dysphoria is to be unhappy with something. So those who are suffering with gender dysphoria, simply this, are unhappy with the body they live in. Wouldn't that go for about 99% of us? I mean, how many of you after a shower have looked in the mirror and you've gone, really? Really? Is this who I am? I mean, really, how many people look in the mirror and are 100% happy? Oh, that, that tiny little 1%, you know, look, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're nailing it, buddy. No, nobody, no, we're all a little bit unhappy on one level or another. But the, the bigger question is that we have got this, this narrative. We have got this runaway train on this one particular issue that seems to be, who knows where it's going, where you are seeing gender dysphoria double every single year. You see these kids being taught it in school that they can decide what gender they want to be. And I'm thinking, who's standing up against this? Who's speaking the truth? Why is nobody willing to put the brakes on? I'll tell you why. Because they're all afraid of being called a homophobe or a bigot or something else and, we're, and we don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know, there's something called speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love. And you know what? My heart breaks. I want you to hear this. My heart breaks for these young people that are suffering with gender dysphoria. I, my heart breaks for it. I know it's a real thing. This is, I'm not making fun of it. It's, it's not some phony thing they've put on. But they, this culture has gone completely mad, and it's telling them this. It's giving, sending them their narrative. What do they know? They're little children growing up and being told this. Of course they're going to believe this. And somebody needs to stand up and remind people that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made and created in his image, and God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't build no junk. I'm telling you, this experiment, let's call it what it is, this experiment has already gone awry. It's already going off the rails, I'm telling you. You know, you, the UK has been further ahead than us on this. And they had an institute called the, the Tavistock Center. Here's a picture of, of it. They've closed this, and I'll tell you what they did. This institute, children only, 30,000 children went through treatment at Tavistock getting uh, puberty blockers, uh, hormones, or gender reassignment surgery. They've now had to close it because they have over a thousand lawsuits against them of people who are saying we got pushed into this or moved too fast, we didn't, weren't told our options, and now they've shut this thing down. They, they're not admitting they're making a mistake, but they know they have, and they've had to change directions. We have a Canadian story that is fascinating that I want to tell you. It's really important. There is a, a doctor in Canada, a clinical psychologist by the name of Dr. Uh, Kenneth Zucker. 
and uh, he's probably the foremost expert on gender dysphoria in the whole world. He's been studying this longer than anybody else since 1974. And he was the head of the Gender Identity Clinic in Toronto. And he took a much different approach. Now, understand something about Zucker. He's not transphobic, he's not homophobic, he actually believes in, in homosexuality, he believes that, that transgenderism is, is, is as a particular option. But he also believes that, you, uh, that there are p kids that are different kinds of girls and different kinds of boys, and there's, uh, there's tomboys, and there's, uh, there's, there's girls, or, or sorry, uh, boys that you know, maybe like to play with dollhouses and different things, and that doesn't necessarily make them a different gender. And his philosophy on this was that you needed to be careful and gentle with them, and you need to give them time to work out and become comfortable with who they were in their own body. And this is what his research found out that 88% of these young people, given time, will opt out of transition. 88%, 88%. Now what happened was the activists saw what he was doing and they accused him of uh, conversion therapy and reparative therapy and there's different names for it. And of course, it's, these have become bad words in, in our culture. And so, so they attacked him, the institute got closed and he got fired from his job. He sued them and he won because they used falsified information about what he'd done, he won. But it was too late by then. He won $580,000, but he, the institute was closed and he lost his job and he was, his reputation was ruined and it was a big, big lie. So the BBC comes along, does a documentary on this story. They came to Canada and did this documentary primarily on, on Dr. Zucker and I'm gonna show you it. Here it is, it was called Gender, Transgender Kids, Who Knows Best? And uh, I've seen it. I'm gonna recommend it to every single parent and every single grandparent, you need to watch this video. It's an hour long, I put the QR code directly linking you to it. It's completely objective, it's got nothing to do with Bible or scripture or religion or any of that. It has to do with this whole movement, it presents both sides, you can watch it and you can make up your own mind on it. So they aired it in the UK, it was produced here in Canada, it went to be aired on CBC, are you ready for this? And it got banned. It never aired in Canada. That's what we're dealing with in our, in our country. So it's never gone to air, and you'll have trouble finding it. That's why I put that QR code up there, so you can find it. I'm telling you, it'll be, it'll, you'll learn more in an hour about this stuff than I could possibly ever explain to you in a day. And you'll go away from that, okay, and you'll see both sides of this story. So I just want to recommend that to every parent. If you didn't catch the QR code, you can go to guest services. We, we can get it to you. So the first thing is this is that the young man came to his senses. Second part of this story is that, that he's on his way home and he's heading home hoping that his father is gonna accept him as a servant. And then we see his father on the other side and it says, and while he was a still afar off, his father saw him. What does that tell you? What does it tell you? He was looking. He was looking every morning, he would look, look down that long and windy road. He was looking to see if his son was gonna return. And when he saw him, it says he ran. He ran down the road and he embraced him and put his face in his neck and kissed his neck. He was smelly, stinky pig, pig poop all over him. And he loved him and he brought him back to the house and he gave him a robe and a ring and he gave him sandals and he killed the fatted calf and he had a feast. And he says, my son has returned. And I want you to imagine that picture because, you know, one way or another, we've all gone astray from God. We've all gone off and we come to our senses 
And the scripture defines this God this way. It says, God stands with his arms outstretched to a stubborn and rebellious people. God is that father, always extending his love, waiting to embrace us and bring us from slavery into sonship. I just want to close the service with one final story here. I know I've gone a little long, but bear with me here for a moment. So I want to tell you a story of Laura Perry. Laura Perry uh, was a tomboy, liked to cut, you know, climb trees and ride her bike and hang out with boys and do all that stuff, and that's cool. There's lots of different kinds of girls. And so then what happened when she was nine years old, she got sexually abused by an older boy. And uh, that sort of led her into all kinds of things and into, into, as a teen, sexual promiscuity and pornography. And her impression of a girl was that was someone that was abused by a boy. And she started to hate who she was. And she started to hate being a girl. And she decided she wanted to be a boy. And at the age of 25, she started to transition to a boy or to a man. And she started doing the hormone therapy and she still didn't feel like a man. So then she had a double mastectomy and still didn't feel like a man. And she said, if I go the full distance, maybe I'll feel like a man. So she had a hysterectomy and she still didn't feel like a man. And it's a much longer story that I don't have time to tell you, but her mother was instrumental in bringing her back to Christ. And she had a revelation after several years of living as a transgendered man, she had a revelation of her sonship and the fatherhood of God and I'm going to run you the clip. You can hear it in her own words. And you can, you can see the rest of this. You look this up online. Just Laura Perry. Uh, you'll find it anywhere online and a full-length video. But here's the clip of it. I want you to see it. As I'm sitting there thinking about it one night, the Lord very clearly said, if you stood before me tonight, what name would I call? And I was very stunned by that because I thought, I just had convinced myself that God would accept me as Jake. And I had pictured myself showing up in heaven as a boy. And I didn't really answer at first, but I knew that he was not going to call me Jake. God said, let me tell you who you are. And it was the most loving voice I've ever heard in my life. One night, as I was um, calling out to the Lord, I had a clear vision of Jesus Christ getting down on one knee. He reached his hand into the pit and he said, do you trust me? And as I thought about it for a second, I knew he was asking me to leave everything. And I said, I do. And so I took his hand and walked away from my entire life. I left my partner, I left my job, I left my um, security, my entire identity behind. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. God began to peel away the layers, began to heal the wounds and the hurt, and help me for, to forgive um, everything and to really wrestle with my own, the lies that I had believed as a child. My mom really did love me, but I just couldn't understand it. Not only did he heal our relationship, he used her to bring me to Christ. When people get tired of the lies, they don't turn to the people that lie to them. They turn to the people that told them the truth even when they didn't want to hear it. That video just touches my heart to see this beautiful woman when she went through a transition, she changed her name from Laura to, to Jake. And here, here's the picture. Here's the, the journey she went through. Throw that up. There she was as a young girl, went through that transition, and was this bearded man, trans man, and had this revelation of who God was. 
and that she wasn't going to show up in heaven as Jake. And God turned her back. And it's, it's amazing how beautiful and wonderful she looks now. And she considers that a miracle. It's a longer story. But the most important part of this is wherever we are in our journey, God is standing with his arms outreached to us. And he wants us to come back. And the two most important things I want you to hear today are this, that, that, that God is our father in heaven and he loves you. And we are his sons and daughters and we need to receive that love. And if God had one thing to say to you today, it would be this. He would say, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Let's stand together. So I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment if you would. I know there's people in this room and wherever you are in your journey, we're all in different places, right? But if you've never discovered the fatherhood of God and your sonship with him, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you're not sure if you were to die tonight, if you go to heaven, I'm talking to you. And we always make it really simple here. We don't call anybody forward. We don't single them out. Don't ask you to say anything publicly. But right where you are, every head bowed, nobody looking around. If that's you, and you'd like to be embraced by the fatherhood of God and come into the family of God, I want you to just slip up your hand. Just let me see it wherever you are. Thank you, sir, on the side. Anybody else want to join these folks? Take a moment, raise your hand. Thank you at the very back. Thank you. All right, great. Thank you in the front. Anybody else want to join these folks? I won't call you forward. All right, what better day than, than Father's Day to make this decision, right? Anybody else want to join these folks? Okay, you can all put your hands down. Let's, let's pray together, because I said it wouldn't sing anybody out, but if you raised your hand, say it with all your heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. You died for my sin, all my past mistakes. You've washed it all away. And then you rose again on the third day. And you forever lived to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I move from a slave to a son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.